0: Horror Critic.
1: Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt.
2: And I'm Chris.
1: And this is a podcast where my wife and I. Critique and argue over horror films like a couple of drunks at the bar, so maybe never quite learn anything, maybe we never enlighten you, but hopefully you have a good time listening. So today we are wrapping up our not-so-imaginary Friends theme with the 2005 film Hide and Seek. Uh, This was directed by John Polson, who also did the movie Swim Fan, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe some of you remember. <laughs> it's uh, it's not particularly great, but it's okay. Yeah. And it was written by Ari Schlossberg, who also uh, wrote the series Harper's Island. <gasps>
2: I love that show.
1: It's a pretty damn good show. If It's you, amazing. If any of you have never seen it, definitely seek out Harper's Island if you can. It's an entire, like... It's basically a slasher set to an entire series, right? Yeah, it's like um, a soap
2: opera slasher that was inspired by the the Ten Little Indians storyline.
1: Yeah, so it, it's really good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, predates things like, obviously, the slasher series and stuff like that. Uh, but it's really good. Check it out. And Hide and Seek's basically about a uh father played by robert de niro who after the death of his wife uh moves he and his daughter emily played by dakota fanning out into the middle of the woods somewhere out of the city and once they get there emily starts talking to a new imaginary friend and then (laughs) scary shit starts happening and 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 we'll we'll spoil the hell out of that as we go but um, so if you have not seen the film, uh, we are going to spoil it. So I do definitely recommend checking it out before we get into spoilers. We have our usual spoiler free content. So as far as what's releasing this week, these will all be out by the time you're listening to this, uh, no new films that I really wanted to mention, but there are a couple series that I think you'll definitely want to see this week. Uh, so first up is the premiere episode of creep show season three. This is now on shutter. Oop. Uh, Chris and I just watched it the other day really fun you know it's pretty much what you've come to expect from creep show you know i don't know that uh i don't know that most of the stories in particular are going to blow you away necessarily uh but it's really fun it's interesting and the creature effects are incredible oh my god
2: the creature effects are great
1: (laughs) you know greg and gutiro and his team just can just continue to knock it out of the park with those i every episode for me has become all about the effects like i just (laughs) (laughs) you're waiting
2: to see the monster right
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, these days we just see so few practical creatures that with Creepshow, with every episode, having a huge dedication to that, it's just, it's just made it a lot of fun to see what they come up with for each one. But so, so that's out on Shudder. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. And another series that's now out on Netflix is Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass. So, you know, Mike Flanagan did the Haunting on Hill House series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really phenomenal director. He's done a lot of incredible things with TV shows. And I have not seen Midnight Mass yet myself, but I've heard nothing but great things about it. I'm sure that it's going to reach the same dramatic, horrifying levels of everything he's been doing (laughs) up to this point. Uh, So if you're going to see anything this weekend, that's probably the one to check out.
2: Sounds like that's what we're going to be watching this weekend.
1: We better. And then lastly, this isn't a show or, or a film, but I wanted to mention that Elvira is making a... Potentially one time return. It might be a recurring return, but Elvira is making a return for a four movie marathon special on Shudder this Saturday, the 25th. Fuck yeah. Um, So we'll definitely be watching that, obviously. Yes. I don't remember offhand the four movies she's going to be playing. I'm pretty sure, you know, two of them are Elvira. Are, are, I'm pretty sure two of them are Mistress of the Dark and uh, oh god, I can't remember what her other ones called, House on Haunted Hills or something. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> you're all probably so mad at me that I can't remember offhand, but but I'm pretty sure they're gonna be showing those, and then I think Messiah of Evil, and I'm not sure what the fourth one is. But this is huge. Elvira's yeah. coming back. Uh, Elvira also just real or just um revealed the other day that she's been dating a woman for 19 years, which yeah. I think is awesome. Uh, we so, lost
2: our shit about that news in the shop the other day
1: I, I'm sure you did It's awesome <laughs> news you know? Amazing. It's, it, I'm so happy for Elvira that she's been able to come out And it, you know, kind of reveal it to the world And I think that's great but, but anyway, so yeah So that's all the things that you should be checking out this weekend uh, Another thing we like to do is every week On our Twitter, at Killer Critics We like to put up a poll, kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film And what you think of it So between love it, it's fine Don't like it, never seen it Where do you think the audience falls on hide and seek?
2: Like I'm torn on this one because based on all of our other polls, I want to say never seen it because nobody's watched any of our other imaginary kid films, but it's Robert De Niro. So I'm going to go with It's Fine.
1: Have you learned nothing from this month?
2: (laughs) Nobody's seen this one either.
1: So Love It was 14%. It's Fine was 26.3%. Don't Like It was 15.8%. And Never Seen It was (laughs) 43.9%. So... So, yeah, apparently imaginary friend horror movies just ain't that popular. I mean, you know... Th-
2: this, <laughs> Robert De Niro can't even <laughs> get butts in the seats.
1: I mean, that's what's incredible about this one, right? Is you know, it, But that speaks more to the idea that this film has maybe fallen more into obscurity than anything. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, granted, it's only 16 years old, but, I mean, these days I feel like 16 years old is being 100 years old. You know, like, <laughs> it's just... There's just so much fucking content that I... I, I honestly do wonder, like, what the younger generation, like, how far back they really go to seek out yeah. stuff. Because you have so much coming your way. Like, you have no idea. Like, when I was a kid, you did not have <laughs> this much fucking shit on your plate to watch. So all all we had time for was to go back and watch <laughs> the classics, right? And so I'm just, you know, it's a, it doesn't surprise me necessarily uh-huh. uh, that a little under half haven't seen it. Uh, but I will say, yes, you know, it, it, I mean, for God's sakes, this movie's got Robert De Niro, Dakota Fanning, Famke Jensen, Elizabeth Shue, uh, Dylan Baker. I mean, like the cast for this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so if that doesn't sell you on it, I don't know what will. You know, it's I mean, it's none of their best films, but <laughs> but it's still it's still a solid movie with a great cast, you know, uh-huh. and, and they all are exceptional professionals as usual in this you know so they all give good performances but so we always have a few comments that go along with these so these are all from twitter uh at so first up is at becky tyler art so that's becky t-y-l-e-r-a-r-t and they say how come more don't love it it's a good little horror movie elizabeth shue and femka jensen are, are in it too sad to see it fall into obscurity so just like I was saying you know (laughs) Becky also recognizes like yeah this movie seems like it's not really talked about anymore
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah, I I have to agree with what you said earlier I think it's just there's so much content out um that going back and trying to find everything and watch everything isn't super easy and hide and seek isn't a super well-known one like it's got great performances But it's it's not on that amazing chart that gets people seeking it out.
1: I mean, I have to imagine that, you know, with so much out there these days that if your film is not either streaming for free somewhere or readily available on Blu-ray or something Mm -hmm. or 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 talked about amongst horror critics like myself, I just have to mention I just have to imagine that, you know, a a lot of these movies are kind of falling into obscurity because hide and seek is one of those hide and seek is not streaming that I know of. Uh, I don't believe it's on Blu-ray and no one ever talks about it. No. Like, I I mean, you know, y- if you follow me on Twitter, you know me like, you know, I'm on there constantly talking about things and, and you know, seeing what other people are talking about. And just in, in the years that I've been on that site uh, in these horror circles, I've never seen anyone. Discuss hide-and-seek. <laughs>
2: yeah, I feel like it's the downside of the loss of places like Blockbuster. Not having a place where you can go where you don't have to buy a movie, but you can rent it to check out.
1: Oh, well, don't mention Blockbuster because the cancel Blockbuster crowd will be out. Fucking wanting what? to rip your head off. There's uh, a
2: cancel Blockbuster?
1: Uh, it's just, it, so, okay, th- quick rant. You know, so this is, <laughs> this is something else that really frustrates me that happens on social media all the time. It. By the way, so- social media is cyclical, and this drives me nuts. In that we have the same fucking arguments every few months, and I and I always just like want to smash my head against the table and be like, "Can we fucking talk about something else?" Uh, but one thing that comes up, as some of you probably know, is that you know a, a lot of people like myself, we do have a, a nostalgic love for blockbuster, right? Mm-hmm. And we're not naive. I get it. Blockbuster killed a lot of mom and pop chains. Blockbuster was not like some you know super well-run industry <laughs> with respectable people and all this kind of stuff like i get it okay it's
2: run by we, angry teens
3: we
1: we we all know what blockbuster was this is america almost every corporation that you buy things from is run by shitty people and yep. you just need to accept that but basically there's this argument that happens all the time on twitter or social media where it's like you know every once in a while there's a whole new mob of like how dare you love blockbuster blockbuster was horrible and i'm just like yeah, well, it's also where my childhood was born, so yeah. fuck off. I get it. It was horrible. It's in the past. I wouldn't shop there now. Leave me alone.
2: <laughs> well, and at this point, it's a it's a synonym for a store where you can go and rent videos from. Right. We don't want to bring Black Blockbuster, but we want to go and rent physical copies. Right. Because sometimes you don't want to own a movie you haven't seen before.
1: Right, exactly. So So it's just...
2: Yeah,
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's dumb.
1: It, it's done. But anyway, so so no, I completely agree with Becky Tyler. I this film has fallen into obscurity. It's a real shame. I think it's good enough to be remembered, you know. But as our other comments <laughs> will show, it's maybe not as memorable of a movie. So <laughs> uh, so our next so thank you at Becky Tyler for the comment. Appreciate it. So next up is a comment from at Super Marcy. That's S U P E R M A R C E Y. This is my friend Marcy. She and she and our buddy Bede, uh do a bunch of podcasts together, so go follow her. Check them all out. They're great. But she says, I don't think I've seen it since its release. At the time, I enjoyed it and thought it was a decent film. I should revisit it now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's honestly how I feel about this movie. It is a decent film. It's worth checking out, you know, it's got some interesting twists. The actors do a really decent job with their roles in this. It's worth checking out. Is it amazing? Does it deserve to be in top accolades? No, but it's at least a fun, interesting watch that has a kind of interesting twist with it.
1: Yeah, you're not you're not going to find it on many top 100 horror list right like (laughs) except uh, for the
2: top 100 invisible friends list
1: well right because there's only like 10 (laughs) movies uh if that but uh but no but yeah it you know (laughs) so i'll just get right into right into the next comment because so thank you at super marcy for the comment i really appreciate it because the next comment pretty much strikes at what we're talking about here which is uh from at m sawzall so that's m-s-a-w-z-a-l-l And they say, I watched it when it came out on video and I can't remember anything about it, so I guess it's fine. (laughs) And and I'll just say to that, like, look, you know, I I think that's completely understandable because when we were coming to revisit this, I'll be honest, I hadn't watched Hide and Seek since 2005. Like, I had not, I I do not believe I had watched this movie since it came out in theaters. And I remember at the time that I also thought it was fine at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of fall in similar similarly with M. Sawzall here in the sense that when we were coming to revisit this, I remembered literally one thing about it, and that was the twist, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and and I remembered the re- reveal of that. But other than that, I remembered nothing about this movie. So, <laughs> so so it is kind of one of those films I think where it's like, you know, does it does it blow you away necessarily? Maybe not, but. Yeah. But it does have really great performances. It is really well made. There are some fantastic moments in it. But it is kind of one of those where maybe, yeah, it just doesn't make quite the impact yeah. that it could. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to talk all about that and kind of what this movie's all about as we go on here. So so thank you, at M Msazel, for the comment. Really appreciate it. So one last thing we'd like to do before we get into spoilers is talk about the tagline versus the film, what we think of it overall. So the tagline for Hide and Seek was, come out. Come out wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just one of many. So what do you think of the tagline? What do you think of hide and seek overall?
2: Look, it's a fun tagline and I, I think it works for the film. Like it's what you say when you play hide and seek.
1: Indeed. Yeah.
2: And it's, I don't know, I guess for me, the tagline kind of is how I feel about this film. It's not amazing. It's not terrible. It's a solid tagline. And that's how I feel about this film. It's a solid film. Worth kind of checking out, but I think the things that make this movie kind of interesting and enjoyable when you're watching it, which is some of the performances and the little like minutiae that happen in the film, really doesn't make it memorable. So it's a fun watch to go in and it's a fun journey to do, but yeah, it's like popcorn like an hour later, you completely have forgotten what movie you watched,
1: as in you're still hungry. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh uh yeah i i can get behind (laughs) that i guess um i don't know if i'd really call it a popcorn movie but i see what you're saying i do see what you're saying uh flavorless popcorn maybe um
2: it's got a little flavor it's butter butter flavored
1: flavor yeah no so i mean well look uh, we're gonna get into this as we go on because i can't spoil anything here but uh i I like the tagline in the sense that i do think it kind of hints at the uh, what's going on in this film you know it's not just about hide and seek like hide and seek has a whole other play uh throughout the movie that we'll talk about. But so I think I, I think it's fine in that sense. But um as for the film itself, yeah, it's it's uh average. It it's it's <laughs> you know it <laughs> I, I think it's a film that is carried by its performers. Uh you know, I think the cast does wonders with a decent script, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's worth watching for that. I think it's worth watching for them. It's a, good, it's a good one-time watch. Like, if it's a film that you've never seen, I think it's worth giving it a shot. Yeah. Uh, I did talk to people over the week who, you know, either told me that this was one of the films that got them into horror, or it's one of their favorite movies, uh, which I always think is fascinating, you know, kind of going through generations and, like, when you come into the genre, because we all have our nostalgia for different movies. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I like stuff from my childhood, and... That people today might be like that movie's terrible, you know. <laughs> uh, like I lo- like I love Ghoulies, and Ghoulies is by no means an amazing film, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But I love it. I adore it. It's one of the first foo- It's one of the first horror movies I watched as a kid. And there's probably people from today's generation who are like Ghoulies sucks. <laughs> Ghoulies is awful. That movie's so boring or dated or whatever, you know. And I and I go and cry in my corner and say fuck you. Um, <laughs> So, so it's always fun kind of hearing people be like, you know, hide and seek's my, the film that got me in the horror. So it's like a film that they might've caught when they were younger that helped to like spur them in, spur them into the genre. Yeah. Right. And so I just always think it's fascinating. Like every movie has its fans, which mm-hmm. I always think is cool. But anyway, so we're about to get in the sport territory now. So, again, if you have not seen Hide and Seek, please go do so. Again, it's not streaming that I know of. You can rent it for, like, $4. I think I think it's worth a rental. Yeah. It's, worth, it's worth a one-time watch, like I said. But that being said, we're moving to sport territory now. So, as usual, start off with who do you want to talk about. So, again, this film has an amazing cast. Robert De Niro is the father, David. Dakota Fanning as the daughter, Emily. Famke Jensen is their friend, Catherine. Elizabeth Shue is a love interest named Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, who do you want to talk about?
2: Uh, so I want to talk about Emily, who is, you know, our one of our main characters. She's the daughter. Um, and I want to briefly talk about her because I think that Dakota Fanning, for being such a young actress, did such a fantastic job with this role. Because really what we're watching with this film is Emily processing the trauma of not only losing her mom, but what's going on with her dad and her new friend, Charlie. Um, And I think that Dakota Fanning does such an excellent job of doing this nuanced performance that really blurs the line of how much of Emily's actions really are Charlie and how much of it is her actually lashing out through her own trauma and processing stuff. And I think that that's such a difficult line to walk for an actress, especially a young one. So I know I'm supposed to talk more about the character, but I kind of want to give it up to Dakota for just... Creating this very complicated character for such a young character. Well, no, you
1: should. I mean, look, Dakota Fanning's an incredible actress. Right? You know, I I remember actually being really excited for this film when it was announced because of her, uh, because I had seen her in a film called Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. And look, I, by the way, that is the film that was one of the first to make me realize that Rotten Tomatoes is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, because Man on Fire... Uh, at the time, I haven't checked in a, in a while, but at the time that I last looked, I think Man on Fire had like a 20% Oof. rating or something on Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, but that film is fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so Rotten Tomatoes, by the way, people, is, is fucking bull, yeah. all right? Like, look, I get it. I, I, I'm trying to be a Rotten Tomatoes critic as well. I get everyone being excited when they are one, but I will just tell you all, Rotten tomatoes doesn't mean shit, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she she was fantastic in that, and so I remember seeing that she had been casting this, and just being like, oh shit, you know Dakota Fanning and Robert De Niro, who I also loved, you know, like this is gonna be great, because uh, she is she's a really phenomenal actress, and especially as a kid, you know, she was able to come into these roles and just do such and just do so well with such complicated emotions you know uh like she does a lot of that in man on fire and i would argue that hide and seek is an even more complicated role and i think she nails it you know because dakota dakota does really well with kind of balancing what we think of her you know Mm -hmm. like because there's times where you think she's really creepy (laughs) i she's making me think she has something to do with this there's other times where you know, you're kind of like, well, I don't, I don't really know. She seems kind of innocent, like you know, it yeah. just she does a great job of balancing that innocence and darkness, and <laughs> you know, that's so difficult for a child to do. I mean, think of all the horror films you've watched in your life. Usually, the kid actor is the one you're like, I wish they would just kill this fucking kid. Yeah.
3: why is <laughs> this kid I, in this movie? Because <laughs> I, I
1: can't take this kid's <laughs> acting anymore. Uh, but Dakota Fanning was not one of those kids. She, nope. she is, she is who you go to the movie for. Yeah, you know. Um, so no, I completely agree. I think she did a great job in this, but I kind (laughs) of, I kind of wanted to do something similar where I want to talk about Famke Jensen as Catherine, not necessarily because of the character, but just because I think Famke (laughs) is (laughs) amazing. Uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, like two of my favorite or actually three of my favorite Famke roles, uh, cause she, okay, brief, brief thing about (laughs) Famke. I think that Famke deserves to be on that list of horror queens, right? Is she not? She, she's never mentioned that yeah. I know of, you know? like I mean, we always talk about, like, obviously Jamie Lee Curtis, you mm-hmm. know, or Dev Campbell. Like, we, we talk about people like that, right? Uh, but Famke never, I really think, gets that credit as some kind of horror queen, but she so fucking deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> because she's been in a number of genre movies, both as the villain and... And the hero, and she's always fantastic. Yeah, you know. So, so a few that I want to throw out there if you've never seen them or if you just don't remember Famke in them, uh, House on a Haunted Hill, where she plays a really great villain. Love that. Uh, one. Deep Rising, Lord of Illusions. You know, like she is always just so good, and, and and she does a great job in this. And you know, it's almost kind of a shame actually that she's not used more because she is such a great actress. Uh, but as far as her character in general so getting the kind of the themes of hide and seek you know i think famca's character is interesting because you know (laughs) spoilers as we later learn you know robert de niro is charlie dakota fanning's imaginary friend and it's and this whole beginning scene that has david talking with Catherine about moving Emily to the woods out of the city it's fascinating when you go back and watch it because initially when you see the film you know the scene is all about you know he's talking about oh I I think it would be healthy for Emily to get away from all these memories you know and Mm -hmm. just like get her away from things and blah 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 and when you go back and watch it after knowing the secret it's pretty clear that he's not actually talking about Emily he's talking about himself yeah You know, David is talking about how he needs to get away from all this. He needs to get away from the memories of his his dead wife, right? Like, he needs to get away from all this. And there's also a a vague sort of threatening kind of atmosphere to it because Catherine, who is Emily's doctor and a friend of his, Mm -hmm. has kind of become a really good friend of hers. She's almost become like a... Not a replacement for the mother, but she's kind of like filled those shoes for Emily a little bit. Yeah. And there's almost sort of like a vague threat to the way that De Niro is talking to her in this first scene. Because, you know, he kind of offhanded mentions, like, oh, you can come and see her at some point. You know, like <laughs> but but there's 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 just an atmosphere of like he's also trying to get Emily away from her. Yeah. Because because he's at this point. Where he wants Emily all to himself mm-hmm. and Catherine is just another person in the way of that. <laughs> yeah. So so I just think it's just, I just think it's a great scene. Like it's such a it's such a nothing burger scene when you first watch it, but then you go back and it's like, oh, there's actually a lot going on in just these few lines of dialogue here. Well,
2: and there's so much specifically in that because Femke is Emily's doctor. It's not yeah. just that she's a family friend; she is Emily's doctor to help with her, you know, mental well-being. And for the fact that you know her and David work in the same in the same field, for him to be so dismissive of his own daughter's doctor, that's a huge red flag.
1: Oh, on- totally. And and you know, speed on that. Like, what's also interesting about Catherine is that she kind of represents an an element that we've been talking about through the months since we've been since all of these movies kind of deal with some kind of psychological torment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that Catherine throughout this month is one of the few positive uh, mental health care representatives, yeah. right? Like, cause, cause in everything else that we've talked about, there's, it's kind of like a mixed bag of how the film sort of views treatment or how the, or how the characters view treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is one of the few where, treatment is viewed positively, right? Yeah. And and Catherine is this positive influence on Emily. She's, like, the only person that makes Emily even smile at this point, right? And act like and, a child. And act like an actual child. And and David is just like, nope. <laughs> and he's <and> just, like, <laughs> ripping her away from that, right? Because it's threatening to him. Yeah. Because it's almost like he doesn't want Emily to be better in a sense. It's mm-hmm. like he just, all he cares about is having her to himself. And if that means that she's stuck in this torment of missing their mother, then so be it. Yeah. You know, all the better for him to keep her closer to him. So yeah,
2: if I feel like it's one of those things of if he's going to be trapped by the guilt and the pain and the, the trauma of this death, he wants to make sure his daughter is trapped there with him
1: exactly yeah
2: yeah so kind of going off of that why do you think that i am charlie destroys emily's precious doll alex and then emily destroys uh amy's doll later on in the movie
1: uh a whole lot of reasons so (laughs) the i think the simplest one is just that you know so so obviously we learned that charlie aka david is possessive right (laughs) that's Um, putting it mildly that's that's a mild interpretation (laughs) uh no he he's very possessive, and so you know, on one hand, destroying the doll is as well limiting emily's you know limiting Emily's circle of comfort, right yeah, like again he's he's acting in a way where it's like he wants to keep her miserable that so that she is clinging to him mm-hmm. right he he wants to cut off like basically any element of happiness. Uh, so that, so that Emily will stay with him. You know, I, I forget what this is called. This is like a, you know, like this is kind of something that happens with like, uh, kidnappers, right? Is when you kidnap someone and they're so like tormented that they begin to, you know, oh. they begin to kind of like cling to their tormentor. Yeah. It, it's, I, I know, I know, I'm sorry people. Yeah. I can't remember the term offhand. <laughs> I'm having one of those days, but, uh, it's right into my tongue, but. But it's kind of like that sort of thing, right mm-hmm. you know it's almost like he is just trying to keep her as miserable as possible so that she will stay with him you know yeah uh on a, on a more complicated element, I also sort of feel like Alex the doll represents the dead mother because yeah. as we see in I think one of the first scenes of the film, you know, Emily is in bed and her mom's like you know, playing with her and the dolls there, and you know, there's like this very like kind of warm sort of vibe to it, right? Yeah. And so I feel like for Emily, that doll is kind of like a representative of happier times, times with her mom, because we get the impression early on that David was just never there for anything, <laughs> and and it was always the mom, right? Mm-hmm. So so I feel like I feel like Alex is representative of that time where Emily was happier with her mom. And so david destroying it is almost like a jealousy over the mother and a jealousy of emily's memories of the mother you know and it's his sort of way of being like fuck your mom (laughs) and
2: (laughs) yeah i mean i would definitely agree with that i would take it even potentially a step further in the fact that alex is also a blonde doll that like you could say physically also represents a mom but if we even look at Like the fact that more often than not, it is the moms who are buying the dolls and playing with the dolls with with the daughters and the dads. I completely agree with you. I think that the the destruction of Alex and then the, the subsequent destruction of all the other dolls in the cave is really Charlie trying to isolate Emily more and more so that she can only be dependent on him. She has nowhere else to turn except for to him so that he can't be cast aside again that's mm. what triggers Charlie is this this feeling that, you know, he's not the first choice, you know. And I think, you know, that's why I get kind of curious about, you know, Emily destroying Amy's doll. Because I think that it's very easy to read it as I'm um, as Emily trying to kind of protect Amy in a way, you know, trying to destroy the doll and like create that barrier of. No, I don't want to be your friend because I don't want anything to happen to you. You know, I want to protect you from this weird situation I'm in. The only reason why I feel like there might be a darker side to it and it might be like a window into Emily's own darkness and kind of destructive behavior is that the only other time we kind of see Emily not, inter- not really interact with Amy, but there's the moment when David first meets her, um, meets Amy and Elizabeth where Amy's having fun and playing on the playground. And Emily seems bored by the entire thing. She's watching this very happy girl have a great time. And she just seems disinterested until Amy falls off the fucking monkey bars. Mm -hmm. That's the only time we see Emily smile. And it's in the realization that she might be excited that Amy hurt herself.
1: Well, look, so, so, I mean, yeah, no, Emily's a pretty fucked up kid in this. And, (laughs) and, uh, and, and by the way, you know, speaking to Dakota Fanning's performance, I, I love that moment where she's watching from the car and the girl falls and they say something about Emily and you just hear this little, like, like breath from Emily, you know. Uh, it's just really creepy and disturbing. But yeah. anyway, um, no, yeah, I, I do think that she, through Charlie's influence, is kind of being, you know she's sort of taking on some of the same mentality of she doesn't want anyone else to be happy. Yeah. You know, she like to her, to her happiness is like, it's like being slapped in the face, you know, like Mm -hmm. someone being happy around her is an awful thing for her, you know? Yeah. So, so it's almost, so yeah, I I think, I think it kind of goes both ways. Like, I think that partially she's maybe doing it to protect Amy. uh, But I think that another big part of it is that, you know, her doll's destroyed, and now she wants to destroy Amy's doll because no one is allowed to be happy because she's so unhappy. You know, yeah. I don't <laughs> uh, have
2: Alex anymore, so I'm gonna fuck up your doll.
1: Right, and, and so, so yeah, it's it's all really fucked up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and, and kind of playing into that is also just this idea that like, you know, so we're talking about how Charlie's destroying the doll in order to bring Emily closer to him. And it's really kind of interesting to watch, like, how it works with both Charlie and David, because, you know, David is also doing things, but, but in David's sense, you're seeing him struggle with it. So, like, Charlie, you know, Charlie is successfully yeah. <laughs> bringing <laughs> Emily closer to him by destroying her doll, giving her no outlet other than him for a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, David, you know, he's doing the usual things, like making dinner that she doesn't eat, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's also really creepy to watch him trying to replicate the mom exactly. That is because such it, an unpleasant scene. Oh, because it because it shows that he has no concept of how to relate to Emily. Like, he has no concept of how to be a dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he's just copying what the mother did, which obviously, you know, any kid's going to be like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> you know? uh, and And so that's all fascinating. But then you also have moments, too, that... Again, I like to read too much into things, but you have moments like when he's trying to open the window and he can't and it's stuck and he's failing at it. Mm-hmm. And then later the windows open because Charlie opened it. And that little bit there, again, it seems so innocuous, but I think it plays into so much of what's going on with David because, you know, Charlie is this whole representative of like David's insecurities and what's wrong with him, you know, and, and the things that make him nervous or scare him. And Charlie's kind of like the the version of that that can deal with it, right? You know, yeah. the version of him that can deal with all the scary things about the world. Mm-hmm. And so Charlie being op- being able to open that window is like a middle finger to David because it's <laughs> like, you know, it, it's commenting on Charlie's strength and David's weakness. Yeah. And at the same time, because it's Emily's room, this is where I read probably too much into it, is that I also feel like, opening that window or t- attempting to open that window is like david attempting to 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 connect with his daughter uh, because mm-hmm. you know there's that like cheesy phrase or saying of you know how the eyes are the window to the soul and all that kind of stuff uh-huh. and so i almost feel like him struggling to open that window is like him struggling to get emily to open up to him you know okay. like like he cannot he cannot I don't know how to say this without sounding weird. Like he cannot get inside <laughs> Emily, you know, like he can <laughs> like he cannot he cannot get her to open up to him. <laughs> and, but Charlie
2: and that, can. But
1: Charlie can, and that window is proof of that, right? Uh-huh. Um so yeah, no, that got weird fast. But yes, you it get, did. But you get what I'm saying. I um, do. But anyway, so I guess touching on the that <laughs> creepy element is uh you know, this film does something else that honestly is kind of unnecessary, but also I think touches on some other things, which is everybody, but pretty much just mostly men in this film are extremely creepy towards Emily. <laughs> yeah. You know, every single man in this movie is like talking to Emily when she's by herself, you know, mm-hmm. or calling her cute or you know stuff like that and it's all it's all perceived in this just really unsettling way. Like none of it seems harmless. It all seems like uncomfortable and like a threat and it's just it's just very off, right? Why why is the film doing this? Like why <laughs> why is this he- why is there this heavy undertone of like creepy men sniffing around Emily?
2: <laughs> so I have two theories. The first theory is very very straightforward. This is just a town filled with pedophiles and they all just want to get in Emily's pants.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's it. (laughs)
2: No, I think the much more realistic answer is this is, this is David's story. This is David's story. And so we are perceiving the world the way that he perceives it. Sure. Um, Because not only do we have all of these men who are really creepy, but a lot of the women seem very into David in a way that feels unnatural. Mm. Uh, So, I really think that the reason why we're seeing all of these, like, creepy men who are behaving really inappropriately with a young child is because that's how David views it. David can't view any interaction with his family, his people, without, you know, being suspect that they're sniffing around for some nefarious reason. He's definitely very traumatized by the fact that he caught his wife in a stairwell, cheating on him.
1: I mean, yeah, naturally.
2: I <laughs> mean, like she's just making out in a stairwell, whatever.
1: <laughs> no, not whatever. It's his wife.
2: <laughs> uh, but it—it's clear that he's, you know, he very obviously has has trauma and stuff like that from it. And so now, any interaction that he's seeing is now being kind of witnessed with this like veil of suspicion that there's no way it could be an uh, innocent interaction. Okay,
1: I think it goes creepier than that. So, oh god. <laughs> uh so okay so So, so,
2: somewhere's in between my town of pedophiles and this
1: so bear with me here so (laughs) so I I think you're half there in the sense that I did it (laughs) in the sense that yeah no it's absolutely being viewed through David's eyes you know this entire movie is through his eyes and I actually hadn't thought of the fact that all of the women seem a little bit too into him they are way too Um, into him which, which they are, but I, I hadn't thought of the idea that that's because we're seeing it through his eyes mm-hmm. and maybe they're not actually that into him, you know, like, like maybe the neighbor woman really, you know, has no interest in him whatsoever. I mean, she probably doesn't. Maybe. And and maybe uh, Elizabeth, who he meets, you know, maybe she maybe they're not even dating. And he just like imagines that whole fucking thing. You she know? might
2: just be coming over to help a widowed man and his daughter. <laughs>
1: Well, that or when she brings Amy over to play, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it could. we don't know. Yeah. You know, it's again, it's all seen through David's eyes. So that whole thing can be n- manipulated for the viewer. We don't actually know if he's really seen Elizabeth or anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think <laughs> but where it gets really uncomfortable, I think, is that. So what is Charlie? Right. Charlie's not actually a man. Charlie is a child. Yes, you know that that's the thing with uh... <laughs> that's the thing that's the thing with the Nero's split personality or, or schizophrenia or whatever is Charlie is a child. Mm-hmm. You know he's he's meant to be like the younger version of David that can play with Emily and can get down on that like kid level with her, right? Yeah. In turn, with that though, you have to wonder: well, if Charlie's a child, and if Charlie's this other personality of David's and and a whole other person, you know, does Charlie actually view Emily as his daughter or does he just view her as another kid? And if he just views her as another kid, does that mean that he's allowed to project onto her feelings that David, that it would not be acceptable for David to do, right? I like the fact that you're
2: very (laughs) delicately trying to hint at the fact that David might want to fuck his daughter.
1: Well, but I but I think it's more complicated than he just wants to fuck his daughter, right? Yeah. I think I think it goes more in line with this: is that, so so you see how uncomfortable he gets when Emily puts on her mom's clothes, right? You and, mean the
2: one she wore before she died?
1: I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> her <I'm>, death outfit. <laughs> yes, obviously, from 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 a viewer's perspective, there's really good reason for him to be upset about that, right? But I think if you dig deeper and you combine that with the fact that. You know he's he's upset about her dressing up and looking like the mom, and he's upset about all these men coming around emily there There's kind of two sides that start playing into this where on one hand, you sort of get the sense that David is David could be looked at as an overprotective father who you know because of his wife cheating on him he that that in itself is like a scary part of adulthood, right. And so now mm-hmm. he's watching Emily, like, kind of grow up and, and become distant from him. You know, the, the way the way that happens with most kids and their parents, like, yeah. you know, I, I imagine it's a natural fear of parents is that your kids going to grow up and not have as much interest in being around, you. you know. And so on one hand, he strikes me as a father that is scared to see his daughter grow up. And so every interaction that she's having with these men is really uncomfortable for him. Because he is viewing it sexually, you know I, I don't i don't think he's i don't I don't think he would view it any other way. he's viewing it sexually because he's projecting onto her, yeah, you know this idea of adulthood, and especially when she dresses up like the mom, you know it just reminds him that like she's growing up, she's going to go do things like the mother did, and that's bad right yeah, and so that's one area that's working into it of his insecurities, and then on another the hand, I think you could make the argument that. Maybe there's a part of him, this Charlie part, that is so obsessed with Emily, that is so, you know, obsessed with keeping her with him, that maybe Charlie does. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say sexually necessarily, but maybe Charlie does look at Emily with. He definitely looks at Emily with feelings that go beyond a father. Yeah. Right. It's hard to say exactly what. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not quite saying that Charlie wants to fuck Emily, but but I am saying that. There was so much working into David being jealous of very obviously, like, what he interprets as, you know, sexual nature that's coming sniffing around Emily, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just something that's so weird about the fact (laughs) that he has seen that kind of interaction with every single man that she's around, you know? Especially considering she's a child.
2: (laughs) uh, I mean, if you don't want to go like the sexual nature and you want to go into like, you know, Charlie being a more childlike, you know, version of David. There is that thing that a lot of us, I think, as kids at around the age that Emily is. She's what about like seven or eight in this? No, she's not that old. I feel like that's the age where we were all on the playground and we didn't really Mm -hmm. understand it. But you played house. You got married and like you had babies, but like there was no sex because you're eight and you don't understand that as a concept.
1: Right. So that's what I mean. Yeah. That, that, like I said, like I'm not saying Charlie wants to fuck her, but I think, Mm -hmm. I think it's around that level, you know? Yeah. Of like there's. In intimacy, but it's not quite what we as adults think of as intimacy, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, it
2: does. Um, I am personally, I am kind of curious about what some of the interactions actually were, because like it didn't occur to me on first viewing. Like, okay, everybody, all the dudes seemed really creepy, and I thought that that was to create a whole bunch of red herrings. It didn't occur to me that like we might be seeing this all through David's lens, sure, and that the what he was witnessing happening. Was it maybe the actual truth of what was happening until I rewatched that last scene I'm um, with uh, neighbor Steve because neighbor Steve neighbor Steve. <laughs> Because, you know, neighbor Steve has been, like, very much upheld to, like, be a villainous person in this. But the last time we see him is after Elizabeth has been murdered and David's now, like, trying to hide the body in the woods. And neighbor Steve comes up and is really aggressive. And when you take a step back from that scene, you know, we're all in the moment with David. What the fuck is this guy doing out here at night? Like, why is he getting all up in the face? Why is he, like, going around the house? And when you take a step back from David's viewpoint and you view it as an actual Neighbor, they're like, "What the fuck is going on in this house?" They're screaming. That window's broken. There's a oh. weird
1: dude in the woods. Oh no! I, you definitely get the impression, especially once you know what's going on, is that the neighbor and probably others have suspected all, all this time that there's something up with David. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, for all we know, like, look, you know, David is so troubled that you know he he's been obviously imagining himself as Charlie through most of the movie. Uh huh. Uh, and so we honestly, we as the viewer, we really have no idea how any of this actually plays out at any time. Yeah. You know, like this, everything that you see in Hide and Seek is all David David's psychological interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, you know, he, he could be, he could be a, like the, the moments that we see with Emily by herself, right? Or with Amy. I mean, for all we know, that could all be in David's head. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why Elizabeth doesn't act that strange after... You know, after Emily rips the head <laughs> off of her doll, right? right? Um, you know, so so we just don't know. Like, we're being manipulated just as much as David is manipulating his own mind. Yeah. So so everything could be playing out in reality differently than what we're seeing.
2: <laughs> it is the thing I'm curious about with this is at what point, you know, are we not seeing, you know, the reality that's actually happening? Um, and I'm kind of curious if it happens before this moment, but it definitely happens once Emily has met Charlie for the first time at the cave, right? Uh, so I'm kind of wondering, what do you think is the the significance of the cave in this film?
1: Well, I think the... So first of all, I, I think it's very possible that Charlie's actually existed before that moment. Or I mean, maybe not. But I mean, I, he
2: killed the wife.
1: Well, he did kill the wife, <laughs> right. And he, and he, you know, imagined it as a suicide. Yeah. You know, so so I think Charlie's existed before this moment maybe he's never come out to emily uh but i but he's been there and 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 we see that again with him in his conversation with catherine and about how they're moving out you know to the woods like i think charlie's already there yeah you know and so as far as the cave itself like you know i i think pretty simply it's just the it's just the dark heart of david's mind yeah you know i i honestly think it's just the dark heart of his mind and why i say that is because you know, it, it, the cave is really just representative of all the things that Char or of all the things that David's scared of. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is kind of like the place in his mind where he packs all of that in and tries to forget about it. And so that's why it's so significant that that's where Charlie emerges from, because it's almost like if you can imagine, you know, David walked into this cave and out came Charlie. Yeah. You know, and Charlie left David there with all of his fears and worries and everything and Charlie came out to conquer them so to speak right yeah so so when you think about it this way you know david at one point mentions that uh that he was really scared of the woods as a kid mm-hmm. right and here's this cave in the woods and what does this cave contain but it contains you know the the broken doll uh there I, there's it has the dead bodies in it you know the cave itself is very kind of reminiscent of the place where his wife died, you know, it's Mm -hmm. well, the place where they imagine her committing suicide, where he put the body Yeah, in the sense that it's like wet and damp and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And, you know, you've got the drip in the cave, which is the drip that he's hearing from the faucet the entire time. So, so really this cave is just this place where he has buried uh, all of the things that scare him the most and that, and that bring out his insecurities the most. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really where he keeps his real personality and where Charlie has emerged from and carried him through the rest of the movie. So
2: I'm very surprised that you didn't go with like your favorite theme with the cave. That it's a womb. It's well- Charlie's womb. <laughs>
1: Well, Charlie doesn't have a womb, <laughs> and
2: <laughs> I mean, I I would say that, like, to your point, like if the cave really represents like all the darkness of David's mind and everything like that, and Charlie is birthed from that darkness.
1: No, I don't see. It really, that way. this <laughs> is
2: the one time. This is the one time.
1: Look, everything's about <laughs> sex except this one thing. Um, Fuck you. <laughs> No, it's I so <laughs> no, I don't see, I don't see the cave sexually. A, a, again, it's because a womb
2: doesn't necessarily have to like be viewed as a sexual thing so fine. much as a creation thing. No, fine.
1: Look, you can, you can, if you want to view the cave <laughs> as a womb that birthed Charlie, that's fine. I just don't see it that way. I see it more as, I see it more as being like the inner recesses of his mind mm-hmm. where he's buried himself, and Charlie has come out of that. And, and you know th- why I view it more as. More is that and less of the womb thematic is that. Uh-huh. Is that, again, <laughs> it, when you go into this cave in the ending, that's where that's where all the secrets are buried. Yeah. You know, so that's why it's less of a womb to me and more of, like, this dark part of the mind mm-hmm. uh, is because that's where he's buried all this stuff. It's where he's buried all of his insecurities. Yeah. You know, so.
2: I mean, i so disappointed. I worked so hard on this answer and just. Nothing, I mean, if that's your answer, nothing. that's your answer. It doesn't mean it's <laughs> right or wrong.
1: So.
2: <laughs> no, I definitely agree with you because I do think that the cave is such a significant part of this film. Just because of all of the broken pieces, everything ends up there. Um, yeah,
1: no, it's broken like his mind.
2: <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. We have one not broken thing though in it, and that's the the music box. And I think it's very interesting that the song choice for the music box because it's the um. You know it's the mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring the entire song is about things breaking and trying to replace it with something else Mm -hmm. and i think that's super significant that that's the thing that kind of makes it to the end um it's emily's connection with Catherine and the one last thing that emily has to try to get out of that darkness
1: and and what is david a broken thing that is trying to be replaced with charlie
2: (laughs) yep that's why i get shot
1: (laughs) no you're absolutely right that that music box is super significant and for the reason you just said like i Yes. So if that yeah. makes you happy, yes. Womb, <laughs> I, got I don't. one
2: thing. I
1: don't agree with. This I agree with. You know, like it's, it's yeah. No, the one thing that has survived and and has not been broken to be replaced is that relationship with Catherine. Yeah. Right. So, so no, I I absolutely think that's what the cave is. It's that place where these broken things have gone in an attempt to be replaced by something else, where Charlie is trying to replace it with something else, mm-hmm. and in the end we see that that's just ain't gonna happen, yeah, Charlie. That so. Doesn't work. <laughs> um. So we've already kind of talked about this a lot but just if there's anything else you have to say about it what is your what are your thoughts on the fact that David ends that the twist ends up being that David is Charlie and and what you think Charlie really is
2: uh, I I have to admit when that reveal happened my first thought was what a pathetic fucking man <laughs> <laughs> what a pathetic fucking man that like look it sucks at being cheated on like I'm not trying to make light of that situation. But then this motherfucker goes and murders his wife.
1: I mean, yeah, we're not advocating for murdering no. people that <laughs> cheat on you. So. And
2: here's the thing. And I honestly feel like this is what Charlie represents. Not the cheating and all that kind of stuff. But what Charlie represents when it comes to David. Um, and it ties into two lines by the strongest women in David's acquaintance. Um, his wife has a line where she tells him that some things can't be fixed by therapy. Mm. And then we also get a line from Catherine going back to that scene we've already been talking about where she's advocating against leaving the city where she does mention sometimes you just need to work through your trauma. And I think Charlie is an example of what happens when you don't really try to face your trauma head on. And actively work through it. Sure. Um, because I think, you know, to what we were talking about with the cave, it's this is David trying to push down all of these negative emotions and everything, but not actually face them, deal with them, and move forward. Which then makes me think, this dude is probably a shitty doctor, too.
1: Oh, he's probably a shitty doctor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I actually want to take it a step further than that. I mean...
2: I always get us <laughs> halfway.
1: I mean, you know, yeah, obviously I think Charlie's a, an example of, you know, just the 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 trauma being presented in a negative way, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he's obviously that, but uh for me I think he's also he's he's representative of a different part of that too, which is just the I I think and this is one thing that's not quite, you know, not quite what the movie's all about, but I think it's kind of there as like a side theme to it is just the idea of, like, a midlife crisis, you know? Uh, well, no, 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 think about it, because okay. you've got you've got this guy who, you know, he, he's struggling because of... Let me put it this way. I think he was having a midlife crisis before he caught his wife cheating on him, mm-hmm. and that spurred him even further and deeper down into the recesses of that dark feeling right Mm -hmm. so so think about it this way right is is you think about like what what happens to people during a midlife crisis they they go through huge changes they generally attempt to become somebody else Uh and in this film you see david doing things that a lot of men do during midlife crisis where you know they they start sniffing around younger women yeah and to (laughs) me i just don't really see it as that much of a coincidence that Catherine's or no that elizabeth's fucking last name is young (laughs) like (laughs) you know so so it's all so that to me is like another example of a midlife crisis trying to go after this younger woman right she looks like a
2: younger hotter version of his wife
1: a little bit yes and and and, you know and then he's also having those fears of being abandoned and and he has all the fears that came with his wife of like he's not good enough he doesn't satisfy her you know he's just all these things that are working into it where it's like you know David has just become convinced that he's just not, he's not worthy, he's not a man, and and that ultimately is what, is what Charlie becomes, is that, you know, and and ultimately what this is about is that David does not feel like a man anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and look, you can, you can uh, debate about that or roll your eyes at that or whatever you want, you know, I get it, haha, men suck, whatever, Um, (laughs) but... But but ultimately, I, I think that David does not feel like a man. I think that he, and if you want to think about it differently, I don't think that David feels like an adult. So we yeah. can look at it that way. You know, I don't think David feels like an adult because because as we're meeting him in this, again, he is just he he feels like he's failed on every level. He's failed as a husband. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a friend. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I think that that is a big part of what drives Charlie out of him because. You know, Charlie, like I was saying earlier, kind of becomes this version of him that, on one hand, doesn't really face the same fears that he does. Yeah. And and the same failures. And on the other hand, he doesn't have to be an adult when he's Charlie. He He gets to be a kid. And as a kid, I mean, we all know, like, as adults, we were all kids once. You... Your worries are a hell of a lot different <laughs> as a kid than they are as an adult, right? You know, like like me as a kid, I mean, one of my biggest worries was like, I don't know, like going to school and being picked on or something, right? Like, yeah. You know, which, I mean, obviously sucks, but then you come home and then you just do whatever. You have no responsibility or anything. And as an adult, you have all the responsibilities. And so to me, Charlie is kind of like that that piece of David that is taking over where he's just trying to like shed every responsibility that he has mm-hmm. and just go back to being a kid again, so that he doesn't have to face, so he doesn't have to face all the adult parts of life that either scare him or torment him or whatever. All right, so.
2: I can see that. So instead of buying like a really fancy car, he murders people. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Now to each their own for midlife crisis.
1: Yeah. I, everyone does it differently, right? Yeah. So
2: either I, way, he got a hot blonde
1: well did he though because not That's only does she end up dead but we don't know <laughs> if they ever actually hooked up or not so it's
2: true.
1: um and, and look and you can even argue to the fact that she is dying because again she represents something that david's afraid of which is sex <laughs> he's afraid of sex he's afraid of not performing well because of how he didn't satisfy his wife right so i i
2: just <laughs> love the idea that charlie pushes her out a window because he's just like you're pretty oh my god you want to do what fuck you, and just shoves.
1: I mean, look, you know, if you want to be real honest about this stuff, like, almost, I mean, look, almost every real-life serial killer, almost every, I'm speaking about males here, Mm -hmm. most male serial killers and most, like, slasher villains in horror, Mm -hmm. you know, thematically, it all kind of comes back to, well, I shouldn't say thematically about real life, but, so we'll focus on movies. Thematically, in film, a lot of those male killers, it does come back to... Sex scares them, you their know, dick don't or, work. or or their dick don't work, or <laughs> or you know, or there's some kind of like insecurity around it, right? We're looking so, at you, Jason. So, no, it's, I mean, it's a very real thing in real life. Like, there yeah. are men that become violent simply because of that dumbass reason, right? So, so it's just so, yeah, no, I we laugh, but I mean, yeah, that's enough to send a psychopath like Charlie to murder somebody. <laughs> so. <laughs>
2: It's such a sad and scary truth of, like, your dick don't work, stab someone, and it'll make you feel better.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> no, it, it's it's why it's so easy to get Viagra pills, but God forbid you try to get an abortion in Texas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I shouldn't laugh about, because it's fucking terrible, and fuck you, Texas. Yeah, uh, fuck you, Texas. Not the people who live in Texas. I know a lot of you. You're all very great people, but yep. fuck you, Texas. <laughs> um. But anyway, so I think we have to start wrapping up here. So who is your killer idiot of hide and seek?
2: Fucking David for thinking that just because his wife cheats on him means he gets to murder her. Fuck you, buddy.
1: Idiot. I, I mean, yeah, I I don't really attribute idiocy, though, to, like, mental snaps. So, <laughs> uh, So I'm going to say it's Elizabeth because she had every fucking goddamn warning signal and still, like, refused to notice any of them. I mean, first of all, I mean, look, Robert De Niro's sitting on her at a gas station, right, and, like, talking about her kid. I mean, nothing is comfortable about the entire scene. Uh, And then, yeah, her daughter, or her... And then his daughter fucking like rips the head off the doll of her niece, you know, yep. and, and she's still like, well, I'll see you next week. Right. And <laughs> I'm going go for dinner. Like she, she just ignores every fucking red flag there is. So she's my killer.
2: That's <laughs>
1: fair. Uh, what about your killer death?
2: Uh, I have to go with Elizabeth with this one just because it was such like a quick shocker of a death. You know, that scene comes out of nowhere. And then I just love seeing someone get pushed out of the window. I don't know. It's always great. It's always great. There's never a bad, like, crashing through a window scene.
1: There there isn't. And in my mind, I still think that Jason has the best throwing through a window scene in part four.
2: Of course (laughs) he does. I
1: love it when he rips that girl out through the window and just... Throws her in, yeah and it's <laughs> so good um
2: jason has almost all the best kids
1: he does have a lot of them uh no yeah mine's also elizabeth for the same reasons it's just such a shocking moment it you expect it but you don't expect it you think that maybe there's going to be a little bit more suspense right mm-hmm. uh, and it just kind of like comes screaming at you <laughs> it
2: escalates I, so quickly <laughs> yeah
1: and so it's really shocking and terrifying for that you know it's, yeah. it's, it's just so unexpected in that moment but uh, what about your killer mvp
2: I feel like that should be obvious. Mine's going to Dakota Fanning for her portrayal of Emily. I already have waxed poetic about how (laughs) well I think she did in this film.
1: Is that what you think it was? Waxing poetically?
2: (laughs) I know good with words that do my best.
1: Yeah, poetic (laughs) my ass. But no, I I also agree, Dakota Fanning, uh, again, because, look, De Niro's great in this. Famke's great in this. Elizabeth Shue's great in this. Everybody's great. But Dakota Fanning considering her age yep. considering how complicated the role is and considering how effective she is absolutely the mvp yes you know she carries. as far as i'm concerned she carries this movie and i just think that's so incredible for not just that big of a role to be put on the shoulders of a child actor and have them successfully carry the film mm-hmm. but when you're also working with the likes of robert de niro or famka Janssen and you're the one that stands out like that's pretty impressive yeah you know so um
2: I will say we might have to own this film because I found out in researching for this that there are four alternate endings, and I kind of want to know what they are.
1: Look them up on YouTube, probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh But anyway, so uh, as usual, before we wrap up here, since it's the end of the month, we have our rankings of everything we've discussed this month. So this month for our Not So Imaginary Friends theme, it's been... Hide and seek, uh, come play. Daniel isn't real. Z. So, how do you rank our month?
2: <laughs> All right. So, coming in at number four is hide and seek. Because this is a good film, but it is not going to stick with me,
1: fortunately. So you're also going to forget it. I'm also (laughs) going to
2: forget this. I am so sorry. Um, Number three for me is Z. Um, Because I kind of feel the same way about Z. It's a little bit unforgettable, but there's some pretty cool iconic scenes with it. Um, number two goes to Come Play, because I think that that's such a well-done film that's tackling some really interesting themes. And obviously, number one is Daniel Isn't Real, because if it's a visually beautiful movie, it's probably going to win for me every single time.
1: Yeah, so my readings are pretty similar. Uh, I have Zia's last. Uh, that's fair. M- mostly because, so like, again, going back to Z, you know, you can listen to our whole episode on that if you want, but... With Z, I think it's got a lot of cool ideas. I think there are some great moments in it. Um, but it, it just had, it just, it's, just, it's such a downer, yeah. you know? <laughs> and it just, it it has trouble, like, there are just some things about it that I think could have been executed a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And and when I look at Hide and Seek, you know, Hide and Seek overall is a very well-executed movie. Yes. It, it, the, I mean, the only issue with it really is just that, you know, maybe the script could have been beefed up or maybe it could have been a more exciting film Mm -hmm. but ultimately it's still a really well made movie yes so so z falls fourth for me it's one that i really just don't have much interest in revisiting that often (laughs) because (laughs) it's so because it's so depressing uh hide and seek comes next it's another one where i'm with chris you know it it's not super memorable i'm probably gonna forget most of it in 10 years (laughs) 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 but but i do think it's a good movie i think it's worth seeing uh next is come play for similar reasons, I think it tackles a lot of really interesting subjects. I love that it portrays autism in a in a mostly positive way, you know. Hmm. Um, and it's got some really great scares in it. I love the creature design and the, and the creature itself. Yeah. that's in that film. And then lastly, Daniels unreal. I mean, look, I think I think uh, you know Adam Midget Mortimer hopefully has a long career ahead of him. I think Daniel Isn't Real, though, is going to be his masterpiece, like, no matter what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, I'm wrong. Hopefully, he makes better movies. You know, yeah. I, I would love to see him be able to top it. But but I just think Daniel, Re- Daniel Isn't Real is just such a moving, frightening, visually awe-inspiring movie that it just, like, there's just no way that it could have been anywhere else but first place for me this month. So. Obviously. <laughs> uh But anyway, so that's going to do it for us on Hide and Seek and our month of Not-So-Imaginary Friends. Uh, We have not yet announced our theme for October. Uh, We'll have a vote on that by the time you're listening to this up on our Twitter page, at Killer Critics. There will be a poll. You can vote on which topic you'd like to hear us discuss. Uh, But other than that, that's going to do it for us. So I'm Matt. And I'm Chris. And have a great night, horror fans. Bye. I hope
0: you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at KillerFromSpace as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled just the way I like them. Have a good night horror fans.